The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great-tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Dr. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and four-time New York Times best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Dr. Perlmutter received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Lynette G. Roundtree Research Award. He has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. In addition, he is a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by such medical institutions as Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, and Harvard University, and serves as an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. His books have been published in 28 languages and include Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, with over 1 million copies in print. Other New York Times bestsellers include Brain Maker, The Grain Brain Cookbook, and his most recent book, the Grain Brain Whole Life Plan. To find out more about Dr. Perlmutter, visit his website, drperlmutter.com, D-R-P-E-R-L-M-U-T-T-E-R.com. David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, and... We go back a long way. We've been close friends, and uh, you're one of my mentors. And I just want to say thank you for being here today. Well, thank you. And I'm always very impressed with the technology that lets us chat like this across the world. It's just, it's great. So let's start off by actually explaining who you are and what your qualifications are as a neurologist and explain to the people what that actually means, please. Well, a neurologist is a qualified uh, physician who specializes in brain uh, health and brain disorders. And uh, beyond that, I'm a fellow of what is called the American College of Nutrition. I actually sit on their board of directors. And I think it's kind of a unique position to be in where I, I am on uh, involved in an organization that focuses on nutrition and at the same time a brain specialist because those two entities are seemingly very, very far apart, and my mission in life is to bring them closer together. 
So that's what I do. I, I look at data studies that deal with the role of nutrition in brain health. Uh, that enters into my day-to-day life and in interacting with others. And I write books about it. I do podcasts with Pete Evans as often as I can. <laughs> and I make it my mission to really empower the listener with the notion that, for example, as it relates to Alzheimer's disease, this is a situation for which there is no medical treatment whatsoever. And yet we know that our lifestyle choices, including nutrition and other aspects of lifestyle that we'll talk about, have a huge role to play in changing a person's brain destiny. So that's basically what I do. And, and I would say just uh, parenthetically that, um, you know, I really uh, am very grateful for opportunities like this to get this message out because I think it's so important on a global scale. And just uh, earlier this week, I was invited to Washington, D.C. to speak to the World Bank and uh, got to speak to them about this exact topic for two hours. It was broadcasted to 150 sites around the world. Basically, the simple notion that economically even, uh, aside from uh, what it does to a person emotionally and family members. Economically, Alzheimer's disease is setting up to be a huge event, costing us close to $1 trillion uh, in U.S. dollars in 2018, uh, you know, far more than the market value of Google or Apple or any you know, big corporation you could think of. Mm. There is no treatment, as I've said, and yet the most well-respected journals are publishing literature that tells us it is by and large preventable. So that's that's what I do. <laughs> that's a bloody good job, mate. I tell you what, I keep doing what you're doing and uh, spread the message wide as far as you can. So let's talk about nutrition because you touched on that. So you said there's no medical treatment, but obviously, I mean, we promote food as medicine. So how does nutrition play a part in the role of brain health or prevention and also treatment if you want to use that word treatment i am absolutely delighted to go to treatment as well but let's first start off and ask the simple question what is it that makes a good brain go bad mm-hmm. and it is a very simple answer in one word inflammation so inflammation is the mechanism it's the process by which the brain degenerates with time that process is uh, amplified and certainly hastened uh, in certain conditions. It goes much more quickly. We see inflammation underlies Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and as a matter of fact, really all the chronic degenerative conditions, including coronary artery disease, diabetes, uh, and even cancer. So we've got to do everything. We'll certainly focus on nutrition here, but everything in our lifestyle choices that will focus on uh, reducing inflammation, because that is the mechanism that ultimately leads to the decline of the brain, which is a situation people fear, you know, more than anything. So when we're talking about inflammation from a dietary perspective, how does the body and brain become inflamed? Through poor food choices or just tell us how this has happened? I will. And I think, you know, take a deep breath, take a step back and, and recognize that The human body has evolved over time, and I mean a couple million years, Mm -hmm. uh, in relationship to the food sources that were available, which were actually very few and far between. I mean, there were were not a lot of 
<laughs> there weren't grocery store shelves with, uh, you know, four and 5,000 different choices. Mm-hmm. We had uh, the animals we could kill or that were found dead on the ground, uh, the fruits and vegetables that we could find, and water. That was basically it. And that is the type of diet that has uh, really cultivated the human being that we are today from a physical perspective and certainly from a genetic perspective and even perhaps more importantly from a microbiome perspective, from the perspective of the gut bacteria that live within us. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, in the last three seconds of our time on this planet, we are throwing foods uh, into the human body uh, at a rate uh, in terms of new foods that is unprecedented and the human body cannot adapt. When we challenge the human body with such a high level of sugar, artificial colors, artificial flavors, uh, and artificial ingredients, including preservatives, and even things like herbicides, like glyphosate, which is a a weed killer that is pervasive on our crops, it uh, affects the expression of our DNA. And our DNA is not adaptable quickly enough to deal with this new onslaught of information. It also changes our gut bacteria. The response is the default uh, error code, and that is inflammation. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when suddenly, and I say suddenly, the past 200 years, there has been this exponential growth in the amount of sugar in the human diet, and this is almost a global event. Sugar acts through a mechanism whereby it binds to the proteins in the body. We call this glycation. When proteins are glycated, it causes two things to happen. Number one, increases the production of damaging chemicals that we call free radicals. And number two, it absolutely turns on the machinery to make the chemicals that mediate inflammation. And this is why when we see studies that dramatically correlate even subtle elevations of blood sugar to increased risk for Alzheimer's. When we see studies like from the Mayo Clinic by Dr. Rosebud Rosebud Roberts, demonstrating that those individuals who favor a higher carbohydrate diet have about an 88% increased risk for that disease for which there is no cure, Alzheimer's, whereas those who favor a lower inflammatory diet with higher levels of good fat have a 44% reduction in their risk for becoming demented. We have to take that information very, very seriously. It's good news. It's great. It's empowering. We can't turn our noses up at it. This is what we've been waiting for. You know, I've been accused of saying that I'm against Uh, research to find a cure for Alzheimer's. I am not. I mean, if there were a magic pill that could help people with their brain function, you bet I'd be writing prescriptions for it. But we don't have that yet, Pete. And and that said, you know, prevention is really the answer. Uh, Prevention, according to the Neijing, the Yellow Emperor in the 4th century BC stated, prevention is the ultimate principle of wisdom. To cure a disease after it has manifested is like digging a well when you feel thirsty, or forging weapons when the war has already begun. Hmm. So this is where it's at. You know, it's uh, we we see research now that shows, for example, that comparing people who are very active to those who are very sedentary, those who are physically active and burn a lot of calories during the day have a fifty percent reduction in their risk for Alzheimer's. 
man, oh man, why aren't people talking about this? This was a study at UCLA combined with the University of Pittsburgh, published in peer-reviewed scientific journals. We really have to get this message out. That's the goal. So when I interviewed you, must be going on about four years, five years ago in Central Park, that, that first time we met. I remember that. You talked about how much fat is actually in our brain, and I think it's a fascinating thing that I'd love for you to cover again, please. Sure. You know, the word fat is, is just negative no matter how you slice it. You know, And if you don't believe me, just walk up to somebody that you don't know on the street and just say that one word, fat, and you'll see the response you get. I mean, everybody has this just this negative sense about the word fat. And, you know, the point is that dietary fat and being fat are two entirely different things. That dietary fat is actually a good thing and keeps you thin. And you need dietary fat because so many parts of the human body are made of fat. Uh, the, the white blood cell uh, membranes, cell membranes, uh, 70% of the dry weight of your brain is fat. So we're all fatheads. And <laughs> that fat doesn't come from the air. It doesn't come from the vegetables we eat, by and large. Uh, it comes from the fat that we eat uh, in terms of, of good uh, fatty uh, vegetables, uh, nuts and seeds and uh, avocados, of course, being a fruit, grass-fed beef, if you choose to eat uh, beef, eggs, you know, that have been so... Uh, castigated for so long, are a wonderful source of healthful fat. Fish, fish oil, of course. So the brain is made from the fat that we eat. Hmm. If you want to build a crummy brain, you eat crummy fat. And that would be the processed fats, the omega-6s, the safflower corn oil, uh, sunflower oil that line the grocery store shelves that are what the body will use by default to build the fatty membranes in the body and in the brain. But in addition, those very fats, those oils that I mentioned, safflower oil, corn oil, sunflower oil, soy oil, these are oils that are very pro-inflammatory because of their high levels of what we call omega-6s. That said, they're working directly against our mission to reduce inflammation because lower inflammation is good for your brain, your immune system, your heart. Uh, your risk for cancer, your risk for diabetes. That's the way we want to go. When I've interviewed you before, you've said the optimum state is basically a mild form of ketosis. Now, we've seen the ketogenic diet be very popular over the last couple of years. So could you talk about what being in ketosis means? And when you say a mild form of ketosis or a ketogenic approach, what that means for people that are listening? Because I see a lot of people are really trying to stay under 20 grams of carbs a day, and I think that could potentially be causing people harm as well. You know, this notion of uh, ketosis is really, really uh, suddenly taking off in terms of uh, people's awareness, and I think that's really very exciting. And, it, you know, frankly, uh, the ketogenic diet is brand new. I mean, it's only the type of diet humans have been on for two, for two million years. So, uh, you know, this is a brand new idea, you know, that, that we go full circle. But basically, a ketogenic diet is a diet that will permit your body to stop relying 100% on burning glucose as a fuel source. And like a flex fuel car, it will shift your body into a place where it can burn fat for fuel, which is a mechanism. It's a, it's a biochemical pathway 
that has allowed us to survive for, for the past couple million years, that we can burn fat for fuel. And it turns out that when we're in this state of ketosis, meaning we're using fat for fuel and not relying on carbohydrates and sugar, it's far more efficient in terms of producing energy. You know, we measure the amount of energy uh, we produce when we consume various foods by uh, the amount of a certain molecule that we create called ATP. And it turns out that uh, when you look at the amount of ATP that you produce eating fat or using fat as a fuel source, it's far greater than carbohydrates. So it's a super efficient way of powering your cells and powering your brain. But beyond that, it does several other very important things. First of all, it's associated with reduced inflammation and I'm sure your listeners are now all dialed in in terms of why that's important. Mm -hmm. It also uh, helps to reduce the formation of free radicals, and it even helps to increase the brain's production of new brain cells. Now, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> yes, please. Uh, when you're in a state of ketosis, meaning you're not relying now on carbs and sugar for your fuel, uh, and your body's burning body fat and also dietary fat after it's been processed in the liver and made into what are called ketone bodies that then power your brain cells, power your body cells. This actually turns on the genes, turns on the DNA that makes a particular chemical called BDNF that your body responds to by making new brain cells, growing a new brain. I mean, Back in 1998, the fact that humans grow new brain cells was discovered by Dr. Peter Erickson. Well, that wasn't a long time ago. Mm. When I say that, uh, I graduated from medical school uh, in 1981. And I can promise you in medical school, we were told that, you know, that your brain never grows new brain cells. That's uh, silly. You know, we're all we're told you had a certain number of brain cells and you maxed out at about 18 years of age. And after that, every beer you drank, every glass of wine, it was downhill. You lose 30,000 brain cells or whatever. So that by the time you get to be my age, if it weren't for the fact that we did grow new brain cells, uh, I'm not sure I'd be having such a coherent conversation with you. Right hmm. now. Hopefully that it's coherent too. So the state of ketosis is the desired one over the state of burning sugar as your main source of fuel. Correct. That's what you're saying. That is right. Fantastic. Now, there are multiple studies in, in my world, neurology, that have shown improved brain function, improved memory, cognitive function in individuals going on to a ketogenic diet. In other words, cutting down their carbs, adding in good sources of fat, especially things like MCT oil and coconut oil. Uh, that uh, we've seen uh, at least one study, a very small study, five individuals uh, in 2008, in which Parkinson's patients had a dramatic improvement in their functionality after being placed on a ketogenic diet. Uh, Dr. Thomas Seyfried wrote a wonderful book about uh, helping cancer patients by putting them on a ketogenic diet because it turns out that cancer cells, unlike normal human cells, are unable to use fat as a fuel, and therefore you basically starve, starve them out. So this is a very, very exciting time that we look at these ketones as fuel sources from the perspective of lowering inflammation, lowering free radical production, causing uh, energy production in a far more efficient way, and ultimately changing our gene expression to help us grow new brain cells.
So let's take a step back to the Alzheimer's because more and more people are getting it around the world. Our loved ones are suffering from these debilitating illnesses. What's your best piece of advice or what would be the protocol, not only for prevention, but once you do have it, if somebody's listening and they want to implement this straight away for their loved ones? First of all, uh, let's just recognize that if you live to be age 85, your risk of Alzheimer's is 50-50. That's the flip of a coin. So, you know, I, I use that as a prelude for my next discussion because really it's what we should all be doing. You don't know if you're going to get it or not. You know, you, you again, 50-50, who likes those odds? Mm -hmm. So you want to do everything you can right now uh, to improve those odds because once you you know, really start to manifest this disease, it certainly becomes more difficult to turn it around. That's not to say that it cannot be turned around because it can't. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, new book out by Dr. Dale Bredesen called The End of Alzheimer's, a New York Times bestseller. Dr. Bredesen, uh, actually he was and his wife were just at our home a couple days ago because uh, he was in Miami, Florida, teaching several hundred doctors uh, exactly the answer to the question you just posed, what to do. And, you know, unlike this notion of finding the magic bullet, you know, the, the, the pill to cure, whatever it may be, Dr. Bredesen recognized that you don't get into Alzheimer's through one door. There are multiple things that conspire in a person that ultimately lead to this decline in the brain function, uh, including diets that are higher in carbohydrates, having a low vitamin D level, having elevated markers of inflammation, having a high level of something called homocysteine, having a pedigree or family history of Alzheimer's. These things uh, are all associated with increased risk, low educational level, female gender. These are all uh, risks that ultimately conspire uh, and will either manifest the disease or not. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of things then that need to be brought to bear in uh, people who are beginning to decline and even in those who have already been diagnosed. They include, top of the list, more aerobic exercise. Why? Not just because you feel great, you know, you make endorphins and you meet people at the gym. Aerobic exercise, according to the research from Dr. Eric Sedet at UCLA, stimulates the exact same gene pathway that I just mentioned about ketones to turn on the production of new brain cells. And in Dr. Erickson's research, he actually demonstrated marked improvement in uh, memory function in people who exercise over a course of one year compared to an age-matched group of people who simply stretched. Not only did their memory function improve, but they actually demonstrated increased size growth of their brain memory center called the hippocampus. So exercise is really job one. One thing I said uh, to the people uh, two days ago at the World Bank, I said, here's a way that you're going to grow new brain cells, especially in the brain's memory center, but you're going to have to buy something. And of course, they all looked at me like, oh, here comes the pitch. Yeah. And I said, what you have to buy is a new pair of running shoes or sneakers because you've got to get off your butts and you've got to be active every single day. And, you know, I think that's got to be one, two, and three on the top of the list. Yep. In addition, you've got to have a diet that cuts the carbs dramatically. You've got to get rid of the sugar. You've got to reduce the carbohydrates, keeping in mind that the carbohydrate-dense 
uh, fiber-rich uh, vegetables uh, and fruits are good choices because they nurture the microbiome and they do not, they do not raise blood sugar. You got to eat more fat. Who knew? Uh, you know, the, the idea that here we are having a health conversation and we're talking about eating more fat. <laughs> I think it's, it's certainly, you know, at a place these days, especially with audiences like you have, where that doesn't raise eyebrows anymore. But, you know, there, there's still plenty of people that opt for the egg white omelet and shouldn't even be on the menu for crying out loud. Hmm. Uh, and, and really are on this roller coaster of dieting basically because they're avoiding what they need. And that is good fat as opposed to those damaging worrisome fats that we talked about earlier. So welcome olive oil back to the table, avocados, nuts and seeds, grass fed beef, wild fish, coconut oil. These are good fats. Uh, and I think beyond that, you know, that's the big part of the story. I'm a fan of vitamin D supplementation as well as DHA, which is an omega-3, really powerfully important for the brain. I think B vitamins are important if the person's homocysteine level is elevated or their B12 level is low. And I think it's really important to kind of individualize the recommendations based on many factors that you learn about a patient. For example, um, is that patient taking a certain medication? that may cause nutritional deficiencies that may impact the brain. Uh, is that person drinking diet soda? The uh, Journal of the American Medical Association recently demonstrated that that's probably not what we want to do. Matter of fact, in the journal Stroke, uh, a recent study showed a 40% increased risk of Alzheimer's in people who regularly drink uh, these types of artificially flavored, uh, sweetened uh, beverages. Why? because of the changes in the gut bacteria leading to, as we talked about, inflammation, bad for the brain. So, gosh, Pete, you've been, you know, that's exactly what your books are all about, is getting rid of these killing carbohydrates, these fattening starches, as uh, Gary Taubes talks about, welcoming colorful fruits and vegetables back to the table. If a person chooses to eat meat, it should be grass-fed or uh, free-range. And, you know, this is the way we've always eaten. And I don't buy the notion that, you know, the type of nutritional plan that you recommend is too expensive for everybody. I don't buy into that at all. Let's factor in your healthcare costs and your long-term health into that equation, your productivity to make a living. Factor that in as well. It was a couple of years ago when I was in Miami and I went to an anti-aging seminar that you were a guest speaker at with and the room was full of doctors. And one of the videos and uh, talks that you displayed was of a FMT patient, a, a young boy. And that stems back into talking about the microbiome because I know you're passionate about the microbiome. So can we sort of link these two together and where we are at in 2017, 2018 in regards to the state of our microbiome in our children and where that is leading to and potentially why we need to fix our microbiome like we've never experienced before and why even an FMT procedure is something that people may need to consider down the track and what type of people need to consider this as well. 
My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's PeteHLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, dot com backslash Pete. Absolutely. So uh, back then, what I presented was a, a case of uh, a young child with moderate autism on the spectrum. And, um, you know, anybody in healthcare or any parent who deals with uh, this situation recognizes that virtually across the board that these kids have uh, gastrointestinal issues. And, you know, we've known that for a long time. Parents, it's the first thing they complain about, uh, that they notice rather when, uh, you know, when they bring their children home from the hospital, the first thing they notice is that, uh, gosh, there's such GI issues going on. Well, having said that, the literature then began to demonstrate uh, that when you looked at the gut bacteria of autistic children uh, compared to those who were non-autistic, there were dramatic differences. And that said, when we recognize that the gut bacteria are controlling the function of the brain, we begin to wonder a little bit, gee, maybe there's something going on with this a different array of bacteria in the gut that's affecting the brain. We know the gut bacteria regulate inflammation. We understand that the gut bacteria play a pivotal role in producing various nutrients for the brain, uh, like the short-chain fatty acids. Uh, Dr. Derek McFabe has found that the, uh, the short-chain fatty acids in, in autistic children are quite different than uh, compared to those who do not have autism, with higher levels of a certain uh, short-chain fatty acid called propionic acid. What he did was injected propionic acid into the brains of laboratory rice, uh, mice and found that for 15, 20 minutes, uh, they wouldn't socialize and they would uh, stand in the corner of their cage and run around in circles. A very compelling video, which I probably showed uh, at that same conference. So we begin to see that a product of the gut bacteria may be damaging to the brain, uh, not just uh, these short-chain fatty acids, but we know that gut bacteria are involved in manufacturing neurotransmitters, uh, things like dopamine and serotonin, you know, the feel-good chemistry versus chemistry that may negatively affect the brain. So something has changed the gut bacteria in autism. That's what our literature shows. We don't really know what that may be. Is it early life antibiotic exposure? Is it uh, being born by cesarean section, which is uh, far more common in autistic children, and they don't get the benefit of the birth canal bacteria when they're born, don't know the answer to that. So I was seeing a patient uh, at the, prior to the, that conference you referred to uh, with his mother, and we had begun with that child to do enemas with probiotics, off-the-shelf probiotics, put them in an enema and instill them into your son's colon. That sounds as crazy as can be, I understand that. You know, but six weeks later, uh, this child was able to uh, tie his shoes. Uh, he could be moved around. He never wanted to be moved before. He was actually on a trampoline. 
uh, and uh, was able to spend the night at a friend's house for the first time in his life. What did we do? We changed the bacteria in his gut. Therefore, it has an effect upon the brain. Well, after that, he plateaued. In other words, he didn't get any more benefit. And his mother asked what further could be done. And I said, you know, why don't we consider a fecal transplant? Why don't we harvest the stool from a, a, a young uh, child who's healthy, hasn't had antibiotics, and we'll instill that into your child's colon. And you know what? I, I, I didn't know what to expect from uh, this child's mother, but nonetheless, she said, absolutely, let's do it. And I think she was very taken by the progress he already made. Hmm. Well, he had several transplants, and I was actually in Germany getting ready to give a lecture, and literally getting ready to walk up on stage, and I got a text from her and then a link to a video. And the video I might have shown at that conference you were at uh, was this child talking about uh, his book report, uh, Benjamin Franklin in school, uh, and uh, what you know what he was going to have for lunch. Uh, he became mainstreamed, went to regular school, and is uh, doing very, very well in school. So, you know, again, I understand that the idea of doing fecal transplant as a, a treatment, uh, if you will, for autism is way, way out there. I mean, at first glance, I understand why there'd be huge pushback. People would say, what in the heck is Dr. Perlmutter thinking? Well, beyond Dr. Perlmutter, uh, in the journal Microbiome in October of 2016, and then ultimately published uh, in January of 2017, uh, is a study in which fecal microbial transplants uh, were performed uh, in a, a fairly in a larger group of autistic children, and the results were really quite substantial. There was a dramatic improvement in their gastrointestinal issues that virtually all of these uh, kids had, but in addition their brain function improved quite substantially. And uh, it was, you know, they call it an exploratory study, uh, but they found a significant improvement in autistic sin, uh, symptoms as well as gastrointestinal symptoms. And what they also found was that the, the uh, bacteria that were instilled into the colon of these kids persisted uh, even eight weeks after the treatment uh, you know, the unique type of bacteria that were given from the donor to the recipient. So it means it held. And so, you know, here's a study that was done at the University of Arizona uh, under strict uh, guidelines, you know, as opposed to perhaps what I, what I ended up doing. Again, validating uh, the idea that the answer to this situation may be uh, not necessarily in the brain, but might be actually in the gut. So then obviously a non-inflammatory probiotic-rich diet moving forward is probably uh, makes a lot of sense too. So I want to talk about anxiety and depression because in Australia, for instance, it's huge and very, very, well, never is diet really brought up in mainstream media or news about the effect that it has on these conditions. And being a neurologist, I'd love to get your opinion on this or, or the facts into how our diet can affect our behaviors such as depression and anxiety. Pete, this is also relatively new information. And uh, what we understand about depression is that it is primarily an inflammatory disorder, that markers of inflammation are dramatically elevated, correlating with level of depression, that leakiness of the gut 
as measured by a certain chemical called lipopolysaccharide, uh, is dramatically elevated, correlating to major depressive disorder. So um, there was a wonderful book recently written by Dr. Emron Mayer uh, called, uh, had to do with uh, microbes in the gut and mood. Uh, he's uh, a, a wonderful researcher also at UCLA, who uh, I've had on, on my podcast, talking about how these changes in gut bacteria relate to mood. I mean, who knew that these hundred trillion organisms that live within us have a role to play in how we feel, how we uh, confront the world on a day-to-day -day basis. But that's what our science is telling us. And when you take a step back and recognize that 90% of the serotonin, of the dopamine, other neuro, so-called neurotransmitters are not made in the brain, they're made in the gut. Uh, we begin to understand that the gut and the things going on within the gut should, in fact, impact mood, either positively or negatively. So, uh, you know, it's all well and good to see a patient who says, uh, says I'm depressed and prescribe an SSRI or commonly prescribed depression medication and push, push him or her out the door. Uh, the reality is um, that's very much treating the smoke and ignoring the fire. The fire is in the gut. So a diet that nurtures the gut, that has high levels of prebiotic fiber, that uses fermented foods like kimchi, kombucha, uh, various other types of fermented foods, uh, and prebiotic foods, including uh, jicama and chicory root and garlic, onions, leeks, dandelion greens. These are foods that are rich in the specific type of fiber that nurtures the gut bacteria so that they can heal the gut lining, reduce inflammation, so that they can participate in making things like serotonin to make us feel good. Uh, this is a very, very important missing link that has just not entered the narrative of modern medicine. Modern medicine is basically one that says that you, if you're depressed, are a Prozac deficient, and it doesn't work. I mean, the utility, the efficacy of these new generation uh, antidepressant medications, uh, SSRIs, is almost identical to placebo. And, you know, I would use placebos, but they're generally sugar pills, so I don't want to give people sugar, so... Hmm. But it's all about healing the gut. Uh, who knew? And, you know, for me as a neurologist, I have to say that's been a very humbling uh, notion because uh, in my upbringing and in my early professional career, everything was in the brain. And that's where we focused. But the reality is that the gut is highly influential in terms of the brain's health destiny as well as the brain's function moment to moment. Obviously, anxiety depression is a multifactorial approach, but just changing the diet, you're saying, can help to improve certain symptoms? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, there are multiple literature citations that demonstrate significant improvement in uh, depression with dietary changes. You know, a lot of these dietary changes favor high levels of DHA, the omega-3 that I talked about earlier. Interventional trials where DHA is given have been shown to be uh, effective in terms of, of depression. Uh, probiotics now are even looked upon as being helpful in depression. Taking off-the-shelf uh, probiotics uh, has been seen to be helpful in that medical condition called depression. So, you know, I want to be as, as clear about that as I possibly can. We are talking about treating a medical condition by using 
probiotics. And if I may go back to Alzheimer's for just a moment, a, a recent study actually demonstrated improvement in very advanced uh, Alzheimer's disease in individuals compared to those receiving a placebo in individuals who were given a probiotic supplement to take. Drove down inflammation and improvement on what was called the mini mental status test. It's a marker of, a measure rather, of how well the brain is working. Well, what basically led me to meet you in the first place was your first book, uh, or one of the most popular books was uh, Grain Brain. And then subsequently you released uh, Brain Maker. And I'd love for you to talk about how grains have an impact on our mental health or, or brain health. And number two, you, you alluded to it just before talking about probiotics, but I, I know you're a big fan of prebiotics as well, and I'd love for you to explain what they are to people as well, because they are vitally important in our diet as well. Please. Be glad to. So, you know, uh, as a neurologist, it's, it's pretty uh, depressing day to day to see patients after patients uh, with, you know, brain decline, and then as you step back and look at the statistics about what's going on around the world, you have to ask the question, what in the heck is going on here? And I think at the time I was ready to write Grain Brain, uh, that the data relating high carbohydrates uh, to uh, brain disorders was really starting to come out uh, in, in multiple uh, venues. We were really beginning to understand that uh, carbs, because they elevate blood sugar, uh, were basically very bad for the brain. So, you know, that was certainly one of the major themes of that book. The other major theme, of course, based on the title, was that we have to rethink our gluttonous overconsumption of grain, and specifically wheat. And just to be clear, uh, I am not saying that all grains are bad. What I am saying is that when we consume grains that contain gluten, and I'll talk about that in a moment, or grains that have been uh, highly processed so that the sugar release is very quick, uh, or grains that have been treated with herbicides, uh, which includes wheat, I might add, that we do bad things to the body. I mean, there are some grains that we can eat uh, in small amounts. Uh, for example, wild organic rice, wild organic corn, uh, quinoa, which by definition is not a, a grain, but always is lumped in the grain uh, category. But my real issue was that, you know, these grain-based foods, like the breads, pastas, cakes, etc., cereals, are powerful ways to raise your blood sugar, and that is not good for the brain. Uh, that, you know, the correlations between elevated blood sugar and brain decline are vast and published in our most well-respected journals, including the New England Journal, journal of Medicine back in 2013 in September that showed that even subtle ele elevations of blood sugar are correlated with dramatic increased risk for dementia. So you got to keep your blood sugar low. If you're eating grains, that's not going to happen. Despite what the grain in industry may say and how Dr. Perlmutter doesn't know what he's talking about because grains are good, right, why should I believe you? <laughs> hmm. So that said, you know, it raises the other issue, and that is the gluten part of the story. So the wheat, uh, barley, oats, and rye are gluten-containing grains. In nature, oats doesn't contain gluten, but because of the milling process, by and large, a lot of oats that you might get are tainted with gluten. The reason that gluten becomes an issue uh, is because gluten contains within it a protein called gliadin, 
And gliadin has been found to increase the leakiness of the gut in all humans, not just in people who have something called celiac disease, not just in the verified people who now have what's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but in all people. Why do I say that? Because it was published in the peer-reviewed journal Nutrients in 2015 from Harvard uh, School of Medicine researchers, demonstrating that this leakiness of the gut that sets the stage for inflammation happens in the uh, intestines of all humans, regardless of whether they have celiac disease or non-gluten sensitivity, non-celiac gluten sensitivity or not. So we've got to do our best to stay away from uh, gluten-containing foods. And truthfully, you know, it, that's the list. Wheat, uh, oats, barley, and rye. There's a lot of stuff out there that you can eat. People say, oh my gosh, I'm gluten. I went gluten-free. There's nothing to eat. Hmm. <laughs> Come on. I mean, it's, it's a big world out there. And I, and I just want to say parenthetically that recently there was a lot of hubbub because uh, the headlines were, that gluten-free diets are associated with increased risk for heart disease. Mm. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, oh, really? Let's look at the study. Well, I'd already seen the study, and you know, I actually had already written about it. And the authors found that, indeed, those individuals who went gluten-free had an increased risk of heart disease. Did that mean that they needed something in gluten? It didn't mean that, and the authors understood that. It meant that people who go gluten-free generally get less fiber because they stop all grains and all sources of fiber. And we know that fiber is important to reduce inflammation and therefore reduce risk for heart disease. The authors of the study even said that in their conclusion. But media said, aha, you crazy people are going gluten-free. You're all going to die of a heart attack now. Oh my gosh, you know, you, you just wonder who spins that information. I know who spins the information. We all do, and that's okay. You know, it's always better to light a single candle. So talking about prebiotics then, because uh, I think that's where we're going with this conversation now, is it, it's vitally important that we have these ingredients in our diet. That's right. And so uh, we say when a woman is pregnant that she has to be careful because she's eating for two. Well... Pete, you and I and everybody else listening to this has to eat carefully because we're all eating for a hundred trillion. We are all eating uh, for the the huge number of organisms that live within our intestines who depend on our food choices uh, in terms of uh, giving them what they need. If you want them to make the neurotransmitters to help you be happy, if you want them to make B vitamins, if you want them to make these short chain fatty acids. And perhaps most importantly, if you want to have them reduce the leakiness of the gut and therefore control inflammation, where you and I started our conversation today, you got to feed them right. If you feed them crap, they're not going to be happy and they're not going to do their jobs. You'll change the diversity of your gut organisms, and that's not a good thing. So we want to give them the food that they want, and that is prebiotic fiber. And these are various foods, some of which I mentioned before, uh, garlic, onions, leeks, radishes, carrots, um, chicory root. One of my favorites is dandelion greens, Jerusalem artichoke, jicama, which is also called Mexican yam, asparagus. Uh, these are foods that contain 
not just fiber, but the unique type of fiber called prebiotic fiber. So for your listeners, again, I'm not saying probiotic. Probiotics are the organisms. They're the bacteria that want to have this prebiotic fiber that, that you're nurturing them with. Now, uh, many health food stores carry prebiotic fiber as a nutritional supplement and made from things like uh, acacia gum. That's this resin that is secreted by the acacia tree that's in sub-Saharan Africa. So there's many, many ways to get more prebiotic fiber into your diet, and it's desperately important. So talking about cooking, obviously for millions of years, we were eating a, a raw-based diet. So what happens when we cook these foods, whether it be the meats or the fats or the prebiotics or, or the vegetables, uh, the fruits? Talk to me about that, please. In the discussion of prebiotic fiber, uh, of course, that's not going to be relevant with reference to meat. Meat doesn't contain any fiber. But again, when we're cooking onions, leeks, uh, Jerusalem, artichoke, jicama, asparagus, uh, dandelion greens, we don't change the uh, prebiotic fiber, which is wonderful. So uh, for your listeners, when you're looking at Pete's books, you see all these beautiful recipes with these colorful vegetables that are rich in prebiotic fiber. They are okay to be cooked. You'll still get the benefits from uh, the prebiotic fiber in these wonderful foods. I'd love to know what you eat on a week-to-week -week basis. And has it changed much over the last five to ten years since you have been, I guess, researching this? Has it become simpler for you or are you supplementing more? Or Tell us how Dr. Perlmutter looks after his lifestyle and diet, please. Sure. And I, I would say in the past five years probably has not changed much, perhaps a little bit in the past 10 years. You know, and, and that really kind of leads me to a, a, just this notion that you know, people will read something that I wrote 20 years ago, which contradicts with what I'm saying today. I just want to say that, you know, that's what you want from me. You want me to uh, stay on top of the most uh, current literature and, and make changes if they're uh, indicated. So, you know, there was a time 25 years ago, 20 years ago, that I was saying, you know, we've got to be careful of all of our fat, eat a very low-fat diet. That was the state of the art. Well, now we know differently. So my diet is, is one that generally uh, doesn't have uh, any food uh, until middle of the day, sometimes 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm, I always try to extend the period of time that I don't eat after dinner as long as possible. So that might be you know, uh, 14 hours easily. Why? Because it gets back to what we talked about earlier. I'm trying to get that ketosis thing, you know, sustained and keep that going on. And the more you're in ketosis, you really, uh, the less hungry you are, the less you feel like you're in demand for calories. You know, if, if you start your day with uh, a glass of orange juice and uh, a coffee with some sugar and maybe a croissant or a bagel or a donut, man, you have pounded your blood sugar, your insulin, uh, your blood sugar goes up, your insulin is secreted, your blood sugar then crashes. And then by 10 o'clock in the morning, you're in deep trouble again. You have to do something quick. What do you do? You find a vending machine and you eat a sweet roll. Uh, if you're in this level of ketosis, that doesn't happen. So I typically... Though mother always said breakfast is your most important meal. I don't actually who said it, but the reality is uh, that's not true. Uh, it's good to extend the morning fast, uh, in, in my opinion. It works for me. Some people need breakfast, and I understand that too. I mean, one size doesn't fit all. 
Uh, I eat a lot of eggs. I have olive oil on basically almost basically every food that I eat. I do eat wild fish. I do eat some grass-fed uh, meat. But by and large, most of what is on my plate are colorful, uh, above-ground vegetables. So I eat a lot of different vegetables. This isn't a, a, a diet that is, you know, you've got to eat meat three times a day. Absolutely not. I think, you know, that listeners need to know that you've got to be very judicious in terms of the amount of protein you consume. Overdo the protein and you'll, again, raise your blood sugar because protein can be broken down to amino acids that can be reassembled to form sugar. So also stimulates uh, what we call glucose, that is, in fact, gluconeogenesis. The, the creation of glucose, de novo, brand new, uh, that's, that can happen on a high-protein diet. Um, we usually have dinner around 7, uh, 6.30, about 6.30 or 7, depending. And it's not a very big dinner. Usually lunch uh, is around 2 o'clock, is typically bigger. A dinner is generally some vegetables cooked in the wok. Uh, there may be some protein uh, with dinner. But again, everything that we eat is, is really uh, drenched in olive oil. I do use a little bit of salt. I drink a lot of water. Uh, who knew? I do drink kombucha. We have a lot of fermented uh, foods. Uh, we do like kimchi. So uh, is it a little bit limited compared to the next person? Sure, I, I think that it is, and I'm glad that it is. Are there restaurant choices that work for us? Absolutely. Plenty of restaurants uh, that we can go to. We know how to order and can make that work. You know, we're seeing more and more restaurants with organic food, so it's really very, very exciting. As far as supplements go, I, uh, I do take prebiotic fiber, added prebiotic fiber every day, along with a probiotic. I take a vitamin D, DHA, coenzyme Q10, B-complex, magnesium, and every once in a while, I'll toss in a multivitamin just uh, for any trace minerals that, you know, I might be low in, but I don't know. Uh, but that's the core of uh, my nutritional supplements. But again, along those lines, I think the most important nutritional supplement you could take is exercise. Hmm. David, we've been mates for quite a long period of time now. And the one thing that I love about you is your optimism and also your vibrancy for life and for living. And, and same with your wife, Lisa. You're, you're wonderful role models. And I'd love to know, nutrition aside, what are some of your most wonderful ingredients for a successful and happy, healthy relationship and, and recipe for life that you'd like to share with our listeners before we end the podcast? Sure. Well, my wife and I meditate every morning. And if we don't, we make sure it happens sometime during the day. And I think that we just emphasize to each other, if it needs emphasis, just this, uh, the importance of having gratitude in your heart all the time. And you look around, and, and there are a lot of things going on around the world that are not good, uh, that are worrisome. But I think if you divert away from that and focus on all the good that's happened to you as a person, and then act upon that. You know, we, we can express our gratitude by our actions. So that's really, I think, um, the motivating force for us. Uh, for me in particular, I'm very grateful uh, for, for so many things. But, you know, as it relates to, to our time together today, I, I know that uh, I don't do, there are not very many things I do very well. You know, I, 
So, but I, I know that there's one thing I can do. It's a gift that I have, and I exploit the heck out of it. And that is, I have this ability to communicate uh, information that might be difficult in a way that people can get their arms around it. And the gratitude part of that is, I'm, I'm so grateful that, that that's been given to me and that it's been cultivated in me. So the gratitude part is then acting on that and, you know, being grateful for venues like Pete Evans having me on hmm. the podcast today. You know, this is, this allows me to be absolutely doing what I think my calling is. And the calling is again to get out the best information I can as I see it. You know, maybe I'm wrong about things, but uh, I have a sense that, you know, if we focus on our best science, uh, that that's a wonderful resource that can then be taken, packaged, and given to people so that they can not be at the mercy of what, uh, you know, a healthcare provider might think should be done for them after they're already sick and can keep them healthy in the first place. And lastly, because I know you're, you're going to have a, a pearl of wisdom here for our listeners, if someone's listening to this and they're at a place in their life where they really want to make a change, but they might be fearful of it, they don't know how to do it because they're in a family situation where they don't want to rock the boat, if they just don't even know where to start, what would be your first piece of advice for them to make a change? So today we covered a lot of information, lower your blood sugar, uh, get exercise, eat more dietary, all, all the things that we covered. What I would like to uh, have people do when we're finished is to walk into the bathroom, look themselves in the eye, in the mirror, and say, I'm going to do this. That's, that's all I want. Uh, you know, I know that when I lecture to large audiences, Perhaps most of the people say, gosh, that was a really inter interesting lecture, and, but I want, it to, I want it to stick. I want action to follow education. So uh, that's really what I want to ha happen is however many of your listeners can, can embrace this information, uh, get your cookbooks and realize that this is the key to being healthy and, and happy and improving your mood and living a longer and healthier life. So... That's what I want to happen. People look in the mirror and say, I can do this. Beautiful, mate. We love you. We love you too. I can't wait to get back back to see you and or have you here in the States. You know, it's been too long. It has been. But uh, thank you so much, David. And uh, love to your beautiful wife. And thank you for sharing your pearls of wisdom today on Recipes for Life. Well, thank you, Pete. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to speaking soon. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast podcast.